indeed. If not for the old rugged cross, we on here? morning. No, no, we're here. I'm on? All right. Well, good morning. Um, please open your Bibles to the letter of 1 Timothy, and the notes, if you want to follow along, are in the uh, bulletin. And as you turn there, I'm going to review a little bit of where we've been in Paul's letter to 1 Timothy. We've closed out chapter 1, which really serves as a standalone introduction to the book where Paul tells Timothy that his fundamental concern in leaving Timothy in Ephesus was to begin to rein in, to shut down the beginnings of false teaching. Teachers who were beginning to pursue novel doctrines, who were beginning to teach myths and genealogies, and, and not the doctrine that produces godliness not doctrines that produces love lived out. And as Paul unpacks that, he talks about how the gospel of the the gospel of God is, is what produces these changed lives. And it is the gospel of God that leads to sound doctrine, and sound doctrine in turn leads to holy lives. And he warns about the danger of trying to pursue one and not the other, sound doctrine or loving lives. And, and they, they must go together. And then at the end of chapter 2, he again reiterates this charge to Timothy to guard the teaching. And then starting in chapter 2, we know we're in a new section because it starts with firstly. Having got this out of the way, this overarching emphasis of what Paul would have young Timothy do, we now move on to practical matters. In fact, chapters 2 to 3 really sort of serve as a section on corporate um, worship services and parameters. In chapters 2 to 3, we're going to deal with prayer, deal with men in the church, women in the church. We're going to deal with elders and deacons and the mystery of godliness. And then in chapter 4, he'll return again to the issue of false teaching. So now we're beginning chapter 2. We're entering into this corporate life, living in the household of God, conducting ourselves as the Lord's church, especially when we gather together. And so if you'd read with me the first seven verses of chapter 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between men and God, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith truth. And so the emphasis of this passage is on public prayer. The title of the message, pray for all for Christ died for all. Pray for all for Christ died for all. Um, the section breaks into two chunks and we're going to look at the first 
which is the priority of public prayer. The priority of public prayer. We're just going to see how important this is. And this priority is seen clearly just in the first phrase. First of all, I urge. This is of first importance for conduct. This is no small matter. Um, first of all, whatever Paul says for the church as it gathers, first of all, we should, we should perk up and listen and pay attention. And what he calls us to is, first of all, he wants us to be a praying people. He wants us to be a praying people. And we're going to look at prayer in three sections. First, the nature of public prayer. What is he talking about? And he gives four words. In fact, the New Testament has seven words, different words that describe different aspects of prayer, and four of them are included here. Now, in some sense, they're meant to be overlap. We're meant to see the full-orbed nature of prayer. It's not that we sort of do prayer one and prayer two and prayer three and prayer four, but rather, these are the things that should typify our prayers. First, we see supplications. And, and what this refers to are urgent requests, a sense of a, of a lacking, a sense of a need. Requests, supplications. Secondly, prayers, literally petitions. Um, this is a word always used in reference to God. T turn over to chapter 5. These first two terms, supplications and prayers, are used of godly widows. 5.5. Five. Where he says that she who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. Supplications and prayers night and day. So we are to be making urgent requests to God. We should be sensing our lack and coming to God with requests. We should be making petitions. Third, we have intercessions. Your translation might take it a little differently, but this word here means a formal request of an official, and it involves empathy and sympathy. And really the heart of priestly ministry, we've talked about this before, a priest stands between God and men, facing God for men. So these types of prayers are prayers for people, we're going to see. Intercessions for other people. You are getting between God and these other people, and you are interceding on their behalf. We sang earlier about how the Lord Jesus even now is our intercessor, pleading our cause. And as 1 Peter 2.9 states that we are a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, it's only right and fitting that we would be habitually interceding, intercessing for others, making requests for them, making supplications for them, making prayers for them. And we, and we can't lose the fourth ingredient here, thanksgiving. And this is important because sometimes we can get so caught up in what we need, in the burden on our hearts for others, that we forget to be thankful for what we have. And, and it's, this is a common formula in that well-known passage, Philippians 4, 6, Paul says as a prescription to guard against anxiety, be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So we can't get so caught up in what we need, what others need, that we've stopped worshiping, that we stop thanking. But this should be the, the color of our prayers. This should be the tone of our prayers. Um, oftentimes, our prayers are too 
narrow in their scope. We pray for physical needs. We pray for um, financial needs. We pray for health needs. And we should. But as we'll see this morning, the scope of our prayers should be so much more than that. It should not be that narrow. It should be ever-expanding and growing, ultimately to encompass the world. So the nature of public prayer we've seen. Now we're going to look at its scope. The scope of public prayer. Point B. The scope of public prayer. And it's to all peoples. And this is the first of three occurrences of all people or all men. The first is here. Prayers should be made for all people. Then in verse 4, God who desires all people to be saved. And then verse 6, Christ gave himself as a ransom for all. You, you noticing the, the theme here? All, all, all. If we're just praying for ourselves, if we're just praying for our church, well, that's good as far as it goes, but it doesn't go nearly far enough. Prayer is the nerve, if you will, that triggers the muscle of God. God responds to prayer. I mean, I am a strong believer in the sovereignty of God, in God's omniscience, his knowing all things, his planning from the beginning to the end, and yet I am equally a firm believer in the efficacy, the effectiveness of prayer. The Bible teaches it in too many places. As we labor in prayer, as we are like that persistent widow, the Lord responds. James tells us that the prayers of a righteous man are effective in their working. And I think far too often we underestimate prayer. We don't value it rightly. We, we jump too quickly to doing something. We don't stop and realize that we have the ear of the king of the universe. We are his children. He delights to hear from us. He's given us his spirit to help us pray because we don't know how to pray as we ought. And even before his throne, we have an intercessor. And so we are to pray for all peoples. Prayer for all peoples. And, and this can cover anything, but the focus of this passage seems to be prayer for their salvation, prayer for the peace of the world to some degree. Now, the, the term all peoples um, has in its scope the different types of peoples. We see that when he lists kings and rulers. There's a danger in the early church, and there's, in some senses, a danger even now, that we begin to think that the gospel is just for certain types of people. In the message of a few weeks ago, we asked, can your gospel save a terrorist? Is your gospel for them, or is it just for us? Is, is Christianity just for us and not for them? Are there people that you think they're too bad, they're too far off? Because Paul therefore God wants us praying for all people, all types of people. Do you know who the king in Rome, the equivalent of the king in Rome was at the time of Paul's writing? Nero, who had already set fire to Rome and blamed the Christians. So they're under severe persecution. Severe persecution. And Paul says the gospel is not just for the Jews. It's not just for a certain sect of people. It's for the whole world. God desires all people to be saved. And so we're praying for all people because Christ died for all people. And we need to broaden the scope of our prayers beyond the walls of our holy huddle, beyond the walls of our church family, out into the world. 
We're to pray for all sorts of people, all types of people, all classes of people, all ages of people. We're to pray for them. We let all just be big and all. You can think of a people, pray for them. No matter how far, no matter how near, pray for them. And in specific, then he goes on to list a specific category of people to pray for, possibly because at the time of his writing, they would be the least likely recipients of Christian prayer. But he wants us to pray, especially for kings and all authorities. And, and the word king is plastic. Paul knows that technically Nero is the emperor, but the ruler, the one who's in charge. And then all authorities. This just sums up leaders in general. And Paul wants the church praying for them, even those leaders who are persecuting them, even those leaders who are accusing them of all sorts of wrongdoings, who are killing them, who are rounding them up and throwing them into um, pits with wild animals, who are lighting them on fire as human candles. These are some of the things that Nero did with Christians. And Paul says, pray for them. Pray for them. The gospel is for them as well. God's love is for them as well. Grace is for them as well. Not just us. In the uh, late second century, church father Tertullian was writing an apology, a defense of the faith, because the early church was blamed with all sorts of crimes, not the least of which was treason. Because part of the Roman state belief was the deity of Caesar, and that was something that Christians could never affirm, they were viewed as treasonous. They did not believe in the Roman pantheon. They were called atheists for that reason. And they were viewed as treasonous because they refused to offer sacrifices to Caesar. And so Tertullian is trying to defend the church where the accusations are false. No, we cannot affirm the deity of Caesar. However, we are loyal and good Roman citizens. And he writes this in his apology in the late second century. Without ceasing, for all our emperors we offer prayer. We pray for life prolonged, for security to the empire, for protection to the imperial house, for brave armies, a faithful senate, a virtuous people, the world at rest, whatever as man or Caesar an emperor could wish for. Do you then, who think that we are nothing, who think we care nothing for the welfare of Caesar, look into God's revelations, examine our sacred books, which we do not keep in hiding. Learn from them that a large benevolence is enjoined upon us, even so far as to supplicate God for our enemies and to beseech blessings on our persecutors. Nay, even in terms, and more clearly, the scripture says, pray for kings and rulers and powers that all may be at peace with you. <clears throat> the early church, Tertullian is insisting, was, was not the enemy of the state. There were certain things conscience would not allow them to do. They were praying for their leaders, for their health, for their wisdom, for blessing. They are playing, praying for their country, for their armies, for peace. Even all the while, standing against many of the things that Nero and the early Roman leaders stood for. It's, it's a difficult balancing act today for Christians because there are certain beliefs that we hold that will offend the culture. Beliefs that we cannot flex on. 
definitions of things that we cannot yield to. And we will offend the culture. And we will not be able to play along. And, and we will be called all sorts of names as a result. But while we do not bend where we dare not bend, while we do not yield where we dare not yield, we should be zealously praying for our leaders. We should be known to be where we can supporting them. We should be praying for God's blessing upon them. And this is step like, vote your conscience in November. Vote for righteousness and vote for truth in November. And in, until then and after then, whoever the Lord has put in power, support with your prayers, honor with your tongue. This is God's will for us. This is of first importance, Paul says, in the church. There's a danger. He has to list these people in particular, I think, in part because these are the last people the early church wants to vote for. Vote for, wants to pray for. I'm sorry. <laughs> I would not vote for Nero, just to be clear. Um, but you can imagine if, if you had a family member who was imprisoned, beaten, killed by this regime, you would be hard-pressed to be praying for God's blessing upon them. And so it takes a special instruction. And, and again, hear me out. Re resist evil, vote for righteousness and what is true and good. Where our country allows you to influence the situation, do so. But all the while, with respectful, thankful, gracious attitudes, praying for those that the Lord has put into control. Um, we, we will be known for those areas that we cannot yield on. We should not be known for mockery, for um, sarcasm, for contempt. We should be known as those people who honor our persecutors, who honor those who we disagree with, who can disagree agreeably. The scope of prayer, all people, and in particular, our rulers and authorities. To what end? With what goal in view? Here are the effects of public prayer, point C. The effects of of public prayer. Paul lists two things. First, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives. Peaceful and quiet lives. And this is not to be confused with sort of the American prosperity dream. If you've been attending the radical class, hopefully that's been shaken out of you. Paul does not say so that we can enjoy our possessions and our money and live nice lives, but peaceful lives, quiet lives. Um, in 1 Thessalonians, you don't need to turn there, but 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12, Paul says something very similar. He says, Aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. You know, we, we shouldn't be trying to create a racket for no reason. We should be known for being a gospel people. Amen being known for being a holy people, amen, for, to be known for being a praying people, amen. But in all other things, as much as possible, we shouldn't try to stick out. We shouldn't try to create a hubbub. We should aim at peaceful, quiet lives. And, and part of our prayers for the government to that end, I mean, that we have freedom of religion, that we have the ability to express and share our faith. And we should be thankful for these things. We should pray for these things. And secondly, that we can live in godliness with all dignity. Again, that the purpose of this peace is not so that we can go and do our American thing, 
so that we can be godly, dignified, literally well-ordered, a well-ordered godly life. The thought simply being that without persecution, without having to hide from the government, which were the very realities Paul's readers were dealing with, it affords a certain amount of the freedom in sharing of our faith and in godliness and holiness that otherwise would not be there. And the assumption is this, that a godly life is the best apologetic for the gospel. Um, the indisputable fact is the best argument for and against Christianity is Christianity. Or more precisely, how Christians practice their Christianity. Christianity lived out can make inroads where few other things can. And so Paul's reasoning works this way. You want a situation where you can live a holy, godly life so that you can make those inroads, so that people can see that even though you're accused of things, you're actually a loving, kind, holy, gracious, patient, meek people. And then they can wonder, well, how did this happen? We can always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within us. So that's the priority of prayer, the, the scope of prayer, the effect of prayer. Secondly, now the reasons for this prayer. Why pray this way? And I've hinted at this already because it's linked together. Paul gives four reasons why we should pray this way. The first is really simple. This type of prayer is good and pleasing in God's sight. It just pleases God. And sometimes that's the reason we just do things. This pleases God. You know, maybe some of the things I've said this morning are challenging you. This pleases God. God is well pleased when his people pray this way. And there's a reason it pleases God. The second point, because it's according to God's will. It's according to God's will. This, he says in verse 3, is good and pleasing in the sight of God who desires all people to be saved and to come the knowledge of the truth. And, and this is that connection. Pray for all people because God desires all people to come to the knowledge of the truth. It's in accordance with God's will. The scripture is littered with these statements of God's universal desire, his universal invitation for people to come to him. Um, not all will. And yet God invites all. All are welcome to come. Let me just read to you a smattering of some of the passages that attest to this. Isaiah 45, 22. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. Isaiah 55, 1 and 2. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money Without price, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and labor for that which does not satisfy? Or Ezekiel 18, 23. Have I any pleasure, says the Lord, in the death of the wicked, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? God is inviting all. Jesus says there's none who come to him that he will turn away. There's none, not one. If you're here today, you are invited to come to the Savior. It is God's good pleasure and will that you would come to, according to this text, a full knowledge of the truth. Notice again that Paul is casting this in the terms of doctrine. Remember, the war that Timothy is to wage is a war for truth. We dealt with this last week. It's the fighting, the good fight of faith for truth 
And so, how does Paul describe salvation? But people coming to the knowledge of the truth. It's God's desire for, for you here today. And again, the gospel is big enough for everyone. And it's God's desire for everyone here today to have a full knowledge of the truth. And by which he means the gospel. And so I don't want to assume that everyone here has arrived at this knowledge. I just want to pause and make that clear, that it is God's desire for you. If we can say for all, then surely part of all is you and you and me and you and you and you. And so it's God's desire for you, for me, to come to the full knowledge of the truth. That's God's heart for now. There'll come a day when the offer of salvation is taken off the table. It'll be the day that you die or the day that Christ returns. Then there will only be justice. Then there will only be judgment. Then there will not be pardon. But today, today is a day of salvation. Today is a day where the gospel is freely offered. It's according and pleasing in God's sight. It's according to God's will. Let me just turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5. And keep your thumb here, because we're going to turn back here at the end of the message. 2 Corinthians 5 is one of my favorite passages um, in referencing to the gospel in our ministry. It's got such picturesque language, and the last verse is such a wonderful summary of the gospel. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. But I want you to see God's heart revealed in this passage. It's striking. Pick it up in verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Let me repeat that. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. I think the New American Standard says God pleading through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And again, dare I say, God is imploring you to know him, to be reconciled with him. If you are not in Christ, if you are not a person who has put your faith and trust in the gospel, then you are not reconciled with God. You and God are not right, you are at odds. And if you die that way, you're in trouble. And the good news is, he sent his son, who became sin for us, so that we might become sinless in him. And it's God's good pleasure, it's God's heart, it's God's desire, it's my heart and my desire. And for all of us who know him here today, it's our desire that today would be a day where you might come to know him. It's God's desire for all to be saved. All will not be saved it is God's heart. It is his desire. Thirdly, this type of prayer is in keeping with the gospel. It's in keeping with the gospel. 
And Paul's reasoning here is tight. It's the same reasoning he gives in Romans 3. If you remember back to our Romans series. And it works this way. Because there is only one God, and because there is only one Savior and mediator, and because there is only one sacrifice, then this gospel must be big enough for everyone. In other words, you can't say, well, this is the American way of salvation, and each religion has its own way, and we sort of get to heaven this way, and other people get to heaven that way, and so we don't need to proselytize, and we don't need to share our faith, because God's really working in all religions, and we'll all get there eventually, so it's okay. That is not what Paul says. A lot of people today are saying things like that. That that is not what Paul says. Paul's entire argument is the the exclusivity. Wow. The exclusivity of the gospel demands that we pray for all, that we reach all, that we share the gospel with all, because there is one God. We'll start there. This is from the Shema in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord your God is one. Many other nations believe in many other gods. The Bible is emphatic that there is but one living God. There's one God. And so the Psalms say all the gods of the people are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens and earth. There's one God. And there is only one mediator. There's, There's not many saviors. There's one And the concept of a mediator is a go-between, someone who stands between two parties who are hostile. If you've ever had a disagreement with someone and you couldn't sort it out, you might have brought in a mediator, some neutral party who could act as the go-between to make peace. And this is the term that Jesus is referred to here as. It's an amazing picture. In Job 9.33, Job speaking of his difficulties with understanding what God was up to and his fear because God is God after all and how do you get in a discussion with God? He says, he is not a man as I am that I might answer him that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Who might lay his hand on us both. And and what's amazing is that by virtue of the incarnation, and this, this again gets at the heart of the gospel, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word came flesh. And so this, this mediator is able to lay a hand on us both by virtue of being very God of very God. He can lay a hand with the Father. And by virtue of being fully human, he can lay a hand on us. He identifies with his people, and so he is the one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. There's one God. There's only one mediator. There's only one way to approach the Father. That's why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And these are some of the uncomfortable truths that we can't budge on some of the uncomfortable truths that the culture will not like us for, and we can't bend on these. In fact, this is the urgency that we sense for getting the message out there. There aren't many ways. There aren't many gods. There aren't many saviors. There's one God. There's one savior. And we see next, there is one all-sufficient death. 
Jesus Christ, it says here, gave himself as a ransom for all. That word ransom, anti-luptron, means a substitute ransom. The word anti in place of, lupton, ransom, a ransom in place of, a substitute payment of ransom, sort of. It's a word I think Paul invented. It doesn't really exist anywhere else. Paul does that all the time. He'll take a normal word, ransom, put anti on the front of it, and make substitute ransom. Works for me. Um, And the concept is this, of course, that Jesus died in our stead. He paid our price. He bought us. So that Peter can say, we've, we've not been redeemed by perishable things, like silver or gold, by the precious blood of the Lamb of God. He is our ransom, our payment. And again, notice this, for all. Jesus died so that all can be saved. Any who come to Christ can be forgiven. His death is sufficient for all who will come. It, it won't, there's, there's no amount of people who coming to Jesus will exhaust the atonement. And, and this is the heart of the gospel. There's one God. There's one meteor. There's one payment. There's one atonement. There's one propitiation. One satisfaction for God's wrath. Only one. Don't miss it. Don't look somewhere else. Don't trust in yourself. Definitely do not look to yourself. It's such a tragedy that this, this payment is sufficient for all who will come. That this God is desiring all to come. And yet so many do not. So many do not. Don't, don't be one of those, please. Don't be one of those who do not come. This is also the testimony of Jesus. Um, I've recently gotten the discussion with some people who think that this type of thinking is, is a Pauline development that came along later. But actually, Paul here is almost directly quoting Jesus verbatim. Matthew 28, 28. Matthew 20, 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45. Again, Jesus speaking. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There, there's no development in Paul's thought. This is direct quotations from the Lord. Why did he come? To give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus said it. Paul said it. That settles it. In the book of Hebrews, speaking of this all-sufficient sacrifice, the writer of Hebrews says, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You know, the other high priests would go in, they'd make their sacrifice, and they'd skedaddle. And Jesus enters into the Holy of Holies, and he offers his sacrifice, which is himself. And then he sits down. And then we're invited to come. We're invited to come into the very presence of God. This is the salvation that God has made for us. This is the gospel that we proclaim. And to this end, we pray that this gospel, that this good news would reach all people.
It would reach our officials. It would reach our armies. It would reach the world. It's God's heart. It should be our heart. The gospel's big enough. And fourthly, such prayers in keeping with God's commission. With God's commission. Paul closes his section talking about how Jesus gave this testimony at the proper time. For I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. And the, and the point he's getting at is this. You want proof that God is trying to reach all peoples, all tongues? Well, probably the easiest evidence is this. He chose a rabbi, a Hasidic Jew, to become the um, apostle to the Gentiles. If that's not cross-cultural enough for you, I don't know what is. Who's, who's the man that God picked to go to the pagan Gentiles? A Pharisee. That's who. It should be pretty clear. God's not just after one group of people. He's not just after one sort of folk. He's after everyone. The gospel's for everyone. This, this praying for all people is in keeping with Paul's commission that God has called him to, his ministry. But I want you to notice that last blank there. Not only is it in keeping with Paul's commission, but if you remember that passage in 2 Corinthians, you can turn back there now. It's also for us. And remember, after all, Paul wants Timothy to have the church praying this way. He wants the church to be praying for the salvation of the world. He wants the church to be living godly lives in front of the world. And so I just want to close, lest we be tempted to think, well, isn't it great that there's people like Paul out there doing this job? Well, it is great that there are people like Paul out there. We've got missionaries on the back wall. Praise God. But this ministry of reconciliation, it, it's for each and every one of us. Make no mistake, you, you've been given a ministry. You, you may not be fulfilling it very well, but you've been given the job. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Now, just pause. Who's the us in that verse? Because I've had somebody try to tell me, well, this is just talking about Paul. No, who's the us in that verse? The us is us. It's everybody. Which is bigger than everybody. It's everybody. That's the us. It's the all. And gave us, same us, the ministry of reconciliation. What's that, Paul? Well, verse 19 explains, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusted to us, same people, the message of reconciliation. We've been entrusted with a message of reconciliation. We've been entrusted with a ministry of reconciliation. Conclusion, verse 20, therefore, we, same group of people, are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. If you're here as a Christian today, then you've been given a ministry and a message and a title. It's a ministry of reconciliation. It's a message of reconciliation. And it's the title of ambassador. The job description goes something like this. You implore people to be reconciled to Christ. Oh, so praise God for the missionaries and church planners like the Apostle Paul. But the Apostle Paul out on ministry is writing back to the church saying, Whoa, Timothy, don't think this is just for me. 
Firstly, the church needs to be praying this way. The church needs to be living this way. Because the ministry of reconciliation is all of ours. It's not just Paul's. It's all of ours, not just Paul's. In Revelation 5, 9 to 10, we get a glimpse of what is to come of the praise of the Lamb. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Every tribe, every language, every people, every nation will be filling up that heavenly host. And so it's, it's all in keeping with God's plan and desire that we pray for all people. Because God desires all people to be saved. Because Christ died for all people. And then we've been given this ministry of reconciliation as we live our lives in a godly and dignified way. This, this, is, uh, this is what we've been called to. And it's so much more than just nice, happy church things. I love nice, happy church things. But we need to get a vision that goes beyond our walls. We need to pray beyond our walls. And, and we need to be willing to open our mouths and speak beyond our walls. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord God, we just pray that you would turn our hearts to be a praying people. People with a heart, not just for our own, our families and our church, our communities, but also for the world. A heart for our leaders, our rulers a heart that reflects your heart, a heart that desires truly to see all come to know you, a heart that desires to, for the gospel to reach everyone, the news of the mediator who died, the Lamb of God slain for the sin of the world. And Lord, we confess that that is frequently not where our hearts are. Lord, and as we prepare to take communion, we just pray that you would work in our hearts, that you would change our hearts, that you would um, soften our hearts so that they would reflect your heart. In Jesus' name, amen. To call the ushers forward. And before we, before we partake of the, the bread and the cup, I've asked um, Dennis Gustafson if he would offer prayer, prayer for our leaders, prayer for the world, um, so we could begin um, to obey what, what, the, what the Lord through Paul has instructed us. Um, Dennis, would you be so kind as to pray, offer up prayer? Lord, we... Uh...
and stand up for truth. to celebrate is the, the Lord's table given to us by our Lord. Um, it's a meal that symbolizes our continual feeding on him spiritually. It symbolizes his death and resurrection. If you are here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus, even now, we'd invite you to, but this, this is a meal for those who know him. And if you do know him, we would welcome you to celebrate the Lord's table with us. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, quoting the Lord, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread.
Candace, will you give thanks for the bread? given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper. We are now going to take the cup.
Grape juice in our cups, Lord, represents your spilled blood for us. It represents the cost that was paid for our redemption. It represents what you sacrificed for us. It announces your, your death and your resurrection. And so, Lord, it is with great reverence that we drink this symbol. We know that you will return. We know that your death is sufficient. Amen. This cup and the new covenant is, is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Please pass the cups to the aisles. God bless. You are dismissed.